Building a Retiring Counselor's Brain. This week, we'll be talking with Ward 8 Counselor Ben Henderson. We'll cover his legacy, his ideal mayor, policing, and a whole host of other things. But not Winter City. He talks way too much about that. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 123, where being a podcast host means right off the top, you get to plug whatever you want. And this week, it's some sad, unfortunate news. If you follow me on Twitter, you will have heard about this. My cat, the elected completely legally, no election fraud whatsoever, president of the Mill Creek Off-Leash Park, Addy, has been diagnosed with neuroendocrine carcinoma. The result is it's a pancreatic cancer. If you know anything about cancer, pancreatic cancers are the nasty ones. It's what got Steve Jobs. It's what got Trebek. Um, And unfortunately, it's what's going to get Addy. Um, So making the best of a nasty situation, if you head over to tpavlik.me slash Addy, link will be down in the show notes, you can see both pictures of my cat, which, you know, joy, uh, but also I'm soliciting donations to Edmonton Humane or Scars or any other rescue or shelter in his honor because he will forever be my president and I hope forever yours. Under the rapid fire. The city is proposing a repeal of 77 area structure, area redevelopment, and neighborhood structure plans, saying that the documents, some of which were approved in the 1970s, have served their purpose. A policy of retiring things that are old, outdated, and just sitting there gathering dust would unfortunately lead to the loss of at least eight city councillors. After an increase in coyote interactions in the city of Edmonton, a group of 40 volunteers are patrolling the streets, tossing tennis balls at the coyotes they see. The program explains itself as the Urban Coyote Intervention Program, but a look at the nonprofit structure had led us to its parent organization, the Edmonton Lycanthropic Tennis League. We spoke with the executive director of the ELTL, Woofdro Wolfson, who told us, quote, After the glory days of Gretzky, we really want Edmonton to be in the limelight again, the pinnacle of achievement. While we have not yet had a where coyote appear, we are confident that with our volunteers' help, when one does turn, it will be fantastic at tennis. The new Alberta curriculum wants to amp up its digital media literacy, and Alberta Ed has actually reached out to Speaking Municipally for support. We're excited that starting this September, we'll be teaching a podcast recording class for K-6 students. Due to funding constraints, there won't be any technology like microphones or editing bays, but we're really excited to see the waveforms those kids draw with their pencil crayons. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported, and supported by the Edmonton Community Foundation and their well-endowed podcast, which helpfully gave us a clip this week. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. I'm Andrew Paul. And we're the hosts of The Well-Endowed Podcast. The Well-Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation, or ECF as we call it. ECF provides grants to charities through the endowment funds we create and manage with our donors. Hence the title of our show, The Well-Endowed Podcast. Every month, we bring you a collection of stories and interviews with fascinating guests who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. Through these stories, we look at the space where endowments intersect with your communities. So if you're interested in the people and issues impacting your community, check out thewellendowedpodcast.com. Our guest for today's episode uh, probably needs no introduction, but we'll give him one. And I think I'm going to throw to Mac for this because I'm reading most of this history and like, I think this predates me being alive. (laughs) We have on the show today, Counselor Ben Henderson. Welcome. Well, thanks. Good to be here. 
Yeah, Mac and I, we go right back to the beginning. I think we met almost right away when I was elected. Yeah, we did. Yeah. So you were you ran in 2001 and 2004. You were first elected in 2007 alongside uh, yeah. Jane Batty in Ward 4. And uh, then the following election, I think, you, is when you switched over to Ward 8. That's when we went from 6 to 12 wards, right? Yeah. And uh, you've been in Ward 8 every, ever since. And I wanted to just quickly mention the 2013 election because I was looking up your vote totals and uh and and you had a significant jump in 2013 the only counselor that had more votes than you that year was brian anderson oh cool i didn't know that i thought i thought amergy did better than me but maybe that's my memory playing false not quite so you had a big year that year this week of course you announced that you were going to step aside and make room for some new energy on council is how you put it so 14 years uh, of serving Edmonton and, and serving on city council. So thank you for that. Maybe first of all, just tell us a bit about the decision, if you could. Well, I had really decided pretty much, and I'd been pretty public about it, to be honest, that I really felt after the last election, that I ran last time, you know, four years ago or three and a half years ago, um, because there was stuff I wanted to get finished, but that if I couldn't finish it in the next four years, it was time for somebody else to have a crack. So it has been in my mind, and I've been fairly public about the fact that I thought it was very unlikely I'd run again. But I, you know, it wasn't until, you know, uh, with everybody else declaring their intentions, I thought I better get out there and make it formal. So that's really what I've done this week. I mean, it's been a weird last year, Mm -hmm. needless to say. And there are some of the things that I would have liked to have been able to push further on than we were able to. We lost some momentum on some of the stuff that I came back to do for one more term. Uh, But I think it's in good enough shape. And I, I, even with that, I think it really is time to let somebody else have a go. I mean, Michael Fair got to the same place around the same time, who was my predecessor. Right. And he really felt he, at the time that he had done what he came to do. And much as people were very disappointed to see him go and that it was time to make room for, for other folk. And he knew that I was chomping at the bit and I think was supportive of where he thought I would go and made the same decision. And I'm sort of aware of that and remember that. And there's stuff that I still love doing. There's stuff that I will deeply miss. There's other stuff that I had enthusiasm for at the beginning that is harder to get enthusiastic about now. And that's not fair to people. You buried like three or four leads there um, that I definitely want to jump to. I think I want to start with the stuff that you don't have as much enthusiasm for anymore that you think a newcomer might do better or might handle better. What are those things? You know, uh, a whole bunch of what we do, a whole bunch of our time is kind of ombudsman work. It's helping people through the stuff that, you know, when you just sort of wish that our administration was able to sort of be a little bit more helpful at times, but to be fair to them in an organization of, you know, 13,000 people, you know, they're not going to be as nimble as they can be. So there's a role that we play as counselors, really helping out on those really grassroots uh, people problems. And they just, they're wearing, they, they take a lot out of you because you're not dealing with people who are happy, you're dealing with people who are unhappy. And I, and I feel for them and I, and I was really excited at the beginning to be able to help and actually make a difference and, and help them out. You can't always do it though. Uh, and that's the kind of stuff that I, it's just prefer to see somebody else come in who can get really pumped again about being able to help people with those little problems, which is so much of the work that we do. It's not that I don't still do it. I still do it avidly, but I don't do it with the kind of joy that I used to have in trying to help on that level. I think that makes sense. And uh, and, the, and the bigger picture stuff is the stuff that I'm going to miss, you know, the, the large the large thinking about how we build the next version of our city. I want to ask you about that big picture stuff. So as you mentioned, you and I uh, have known each other for a long time now, basically since you got started. But I remember 
it was kind of late 2012 that I got an email from you. I still have this email asking if I would be interested in joining what became the Poverty Elimination Committee. So it was one of the mm-hmm. big initiatives that you were working on. There was that one, and then there was, you know later became End Poverty Edmonton. And then the other one that we got yeah. to work on together a little bit was public engagement. And it strikes me that they're both kind of you know big root issues, and, and that's what you just said is kind of where your interest has has been. I mean, looking looking back now at those, I mean, End Poverty Edmonton is still going, and it's a big problem that will take time to solve. But but what is your assessment of sort of the progress you were able to make as a counselor on those initiatives? Uh, you know, I think there's more work to be done on on End Poverty Edmonton, but I think it's on its way. I mean, I think the real challenge there was that the premise of what we were talking about and working on was that we needed to stop putting band-aids on. We needed to actually look at root cause and dig deep. And that's why the goal in the end was one to end poverty because there was no, you know, any admission that poverty was okay was problematic for me, but it was also to do it over a generation. Um, So it was never designed to be something that was going to happen overnight because we needed to force ourselves to think long-term because the short-term thinking around poverty has got us nowhere. You know, it's not that you don't have to put the band-aids on. You have to help people that are in desperate situations right now. But if we're really going to make a difference long-term, I felt we needed a strategy and a commitment to looking at root causes and really changing that kind of intergenerational transfer of poverty that I've seen over my lifetime. And and I felt it was time to say, you know, it's that old definition of insanity. If you keep on doing the same thing over and over again, you know, and expect a different answer, we needed to do something different. We needed to look at the problem a different way. What's interesting about that is some of the stuff that's happened in the last year with the Black Lives Matter and all the all the work that's gone into the into the into the task force on on wellness. You know, is really coming back to a lot of those issues that I think that that M Poverty Edmonton is all about. Uh, the public engagement stuff, you know, is, is the same. It's it, it it was about really going back to the root of it and really, really stepping back and saying, why are we doing this? And really examining that as a starting place and then building up from there. And uh, and it was about cultural change in the city as much as anything else. And it's one of the reasons I, you know, I felt having done the strategy in last term, I wanted to come back to make sure it took root. And I'm thinking it is taking root. I think there's still some gaps it is an ongoing learning. We can only get better. You have to keep on, you know, it's never something you're going to be able to go check. We've done that. We're perfect at it now. But I think it's well on its way. I think the city has really changed its thinking about why we do it and how we do it. And, and that's paid off in some big ways. So those those two issues are big issues. It takes a will of counsel to work on those issues. But I feel like you really played a key role in championing those. Would you say that's fair and accurate and and you know, does it kind of show that as a single counselor, you can really have a big impact? Yeah, you got to be tenacious. And that's actually something I learned from from Michael. Uh, I could never understand looking in from the outside why he, you know, why he wasn't more impatient about certain things, mm-hmm. but he plugged away at stuff and uh, and waited for the right time. So in public engagement was like that. I put it on the table with the mayor, Mayor Mandel, right away and said, this is something I want to work on. And there was not a lot of enthusiasm. I didn't get a lot of support. Right. And then all of a sudden, uh, with the uh, with the, not this not the election just passed, but the one before that, it became clear that the public wanted us to do something, and that created a a window to convince council to let us go do right. it, um, and uh, and administration as well. So, 
you know, that, that, that took a little bit of patience to get the green light to work on it. And once we worked on it, I think, and started working on it, the work was so strong, it became irresistible. So you talked about some of these big picture issues that, you know, there's still work to be done on. And you alluded it to earlier that last summer, we saw a lot of this come to a head and a lot of really material work progress quite quickly. And the culmination of that has been the uh, Community Safety and Wellbeing Task Force has issued their 14 recommendations this week. And I know you mentioned that this is your weekend reading and you're not fully briefed on the report. but. One of the items, to no surprise to me or Mac, was that they recommended that the $260 million that would have been given as raises to the police over the next five years instead be reinvested as community initiatives. Essentially, stop giving the police increases in funding. And last summer, when we heard from a lot of speakers, council did opt to continue funding increases to police, albeit slightly less so than initially planned. I was wondering if you could talk me through the thinking behind continuing those increases and what your rationale was back then. Has your thinking changed? What's your thoughts on this going forward? I think and it was one of the reasons why I felt the most important thing that came out of the, all of that work was getting this task force going. And I haven't read the report yet. I think there's a far more fundamental question that is not a funding question. I think the funding question is a little bit superficial. I, I think there's a more fundamental question about what our expectations of the police are and what are the best ways to create wellness. I, I'm not going to sit here and say we don't need the police. I do think we need the police. I think we need the police for certain things, but I think we've really miscommunicated to them what we need them for. We need the police to keep the peace. What we've created is something that's about maintaining law and order. And I don't think those two things are, are synonymous. And if it's about keeping the peace, what does that look like? What are the instructions we need to give to the police? And what are the resources they need to do that? And what is the kind of cultural mindset that needs to go in to make that happen? And what became really clear in everything we were doing is, you know, there are a lot of Edmontonians that feel that feel safe with the police. There's an awful lot who don't. And the fact that people don't feel safe with the police underlines something that has gone wrong in the system. I'm not naive enough to think that we can walk away and defunding is going to be the magic answer to that, nor do I think pouring money into a social service system without some real thought to what we're doing and really that look at the long term is going to is going to necessarily get us there either. I think we have a remarkable opportunity right now for something that is a century overdue, which is a real mindset about what the roles are that we expect of our police and what the roles are we expect of our social safety net. And, and a really fundamental and honest look at that and rebuilding uh, on that. Whether that's going to happen, I don't know, but I think that's the opportunity that's been presented to us in a way that has never been presented to us before. So if it's just an argument about resources, if it's just an argument about who gets how much money, I'm thinking we're missing part of the picture. And um, that's I'll continue to push for that broader, broader thought about what – we actually want our police to do for us. And I think we're being somewhat unfair to them in that we have miscommunicated what we actually want them to do for us. Uh, Do you think city council should have more control and direction over the Edmonton police? Because currently we have the Edmonton Police Commission on which two city councillors sit. But I think it's fair to say that if council decides they want to change the direction of the police, it's, it's a difficult ship to steer. It's probably like 
a Suez Canal-sized ship. I think that's the window that current events have created for us. And, you know, that was part of the debate. And I do think we've been a little bit cowardly in always deferring to the police commission. And I think we had a kind of soul-searching moment, a number of us did, before we did that, that public hearing, to go, no, we need to step up. We can't continue to just let the police commission, you know, say we don't have any role in this. Um, what council's role is, I think, has to be big picture. You do not want you do not want politicians interfering in who the police charge, and you know that's a very dangerous place to go. You know the relate. I think the police commission is an important buffer to make sure that we're not inappropriately interfering in in how the police apply the law and the remarkable powers they have. But I do think this has always been the case in that larger question of what we expect. There is absolutely a council role, and I think we're stepping into that role. I think the choices that were made coming out of that public hearing were exactly that we were going to step in, and it was time for us to step up and ask some of these more fundamental questions. Actually, the task force recommends that uh, councillors don't sit on the police commission anymore, that those are two spots that should be given to other people in the community, considering the, the role that council already has and the power that council already has. Yeah. So that, that is one of the recommendations, is that why waste two seats for, for council on there when council already could be making these decisions, as you maybe are indicating you guys started to in the summer last yeah, year. Yeah, I, I actually don't think I would support that. I would be more inclined to say if we want more people on police commission, let's make police commission bigger. Because I do think there, you know, knowing that there's two councillors that are dedicated to paying attention to the kind of finer, finer grain is important. You know, just it's a very different example, but I fought really hard and finally achieved it a year ago to get a councillor back on the Edmonton Arts Council, which, which I, you know, I remember from my time mm-hmm. on the Edmonton Arts Council, there'd been a councillor there. And then council decided to take people off all of those committees. I think a communication, an important communication link was severed. So whether or not they need to be formally police commissioners, that's an interesting question. But knowing that there's at least two councillors that have have an expectation of paying attention to the to the finer grain of that conversation, which is something that not all council is ever going to have the bandwidth to do, I think is important. And I think if it didn't happen, you'd see even more distance created and even less awareness at council of some of the intricacies of what the police commission is actually grappling with. My understanding from reading the report is that the Police Act in Alberta only allows 12 members on the commission. Okay. Yeah. Our, our bylaw, for some reason, in Edmonton restricts it to 11. So the recommendation is we'll make it the full 12 and take those two positions that are councillors and, you know, give them to other people. But, you know, that may also speak to whether or not, you know, historically we've put the right... I You know, I think we, you know, I think we've got some good people on the commission. I think we certainly had some times when that was, I was less confident mm-hmm. of that. Um, that's up to council. But understanding what's happening and having councillors who actually sit at the commission table is a good communication link back. You know, I think that's one of those be careful what you wish for for scenarios that so much of the responsibility we take on with, you know, councils, councillors can't pay attention to everything. Mm -hmm. So knowing that there's a couple of people who have said, we will pay attention to this bit and report back to you, I think is important. I think I want to shift gears, but focus on that pay attention to everything because you mentioned off the top that there was some things that you had made some good headway on but also that there were things that you just couldn't finish and you're going to have to pass the next counselor i wonder if you could give us some of the insights onto the things that you'll have to pass on as a torch to the next person i the big one that worries me uh, we'll be able to do some more work on it but we cannot 
be get as far as I'd hoped is is the energy transition strategy and and uh, actually living up to our commitment to a 2030 and a 2050 goal on energy transition and and our carbon uh, use in the city and I, by city I mean it in the in the whole community sense it's not just about the city operations themselves there's some you know we keep on setting ourselves targets there and then going oh gosh shucks we missed them and I we can't afford to do that anymore I think quite apart from the fact that you know, cities are a major piece of the puzzle in, in getting Canada to what it needs to get to to meet the world's commitment to 1.5 degrees. You know, we have huge levers and we have to use them. The really tough choices are going to come at the next budget. And I hope council doesn't wuss out again, um, which has been our habit in the past. So that's the one that worries me the most. You know, we have to show we really mean it. And that may, that means making some some tough, tough choices in this area. It's all well and good to talk about it, but it's time to put our money where our mouth is. And, and uh, that's the one that I worry about most. You were one of only three councillors, well, Councillor Paquette, Mayor Iveson, and yourself who voted to keep the e-bike rebate program yeah. last year when that was on the table to be axed because of the pandemic. I know that's a really small program. It's like $100,000 or something. It's tiny in comparison to this new climate change strategy that is going to require a city investment of something like $100 million annually. How important do you think those smaller things are compared to you know that big picture and some of the, the major decisions that are going to need to be made? If there is anything that's held us up, it's that we always think there's a better idea around the corner. And I think what's become really clear is it's all of the above. We cannot cherry pick pieces. We have to do all of it. And even then, we would probably still be falling short. You know, what was exciting about the e-bike program is how successful it was. You know, e-bike sales soared and continued to soar, which is what it was designed to do. It raised the profile. It got people to try something they might not. The timing was perfect in terms of COVID and people's interest in finding other ways to travel. So it was designed to be a kind of lost leader to get to get those early adopters out there to show uh, the rest of the market what was doable. And, and it was achieving that in spades. And it fell prey to kind of simplistic politics that it just optically looked questionable. And I, yeah, we maybe didn't do a great job of selling it. And the timing was really, was problematic. But to be fair to administration, they had delayed it uh, because of COVID and then felt that given given the urgency that we had expressed around getting on with this stuff, uh, went ahead and did it. I think it was a kind of knee-jerk reaction on our part that was more about optics and was about saving money. It undermined a program that was doing exactly what it was designed to do. It left a number of, of people, well-intentioned people, who had spent significant amounts of money buying e-bikes with the understanding they were going to get a rebate, left them high and dry, which is very unfair to them, and created more anger amongst the people that were trying to commit and do the right thing than anything. So the trouble is with any of these things, there's always way more reasons not to do something than to do it. And we need to get past that. We need to get back that, you know, it's not hard to find reasons not to do things. Um, but um, I, I think it was the wrong call and it didn't save us anything significant. Right. It's, you right. know, it sounded like a lot of money. I mean, the irony is, you know, with, you know, that we deal in millions of dollars usually, and that was in the $50,000 range. Right. But the smaller the amount of money is, the more it seems to catch the public's attention, ironically. I think it becomes amounts of money that people can understand, which which is not their fault. But as a result, we tend to tie ourselves in pretzels over things that make very little difference to the big picture. 
People say they don't want regulation. Well, if they don't want regulation, then they have to let us do incentives or nothing's going to happen. You gave us a quote in that uh, tirade about e-bikes that sounded eerily familiar. Previously, you said, quote, I love this city to death, but we have a really bad habit of finding reasons to not do things, end quote. And this was about the gondola, um, which (laughs) I got to say, if you'd listened to the podcast at all, you're not in welcome company uh, with gondola support uh, between the two of us. But you had pretty strongly supported not necessarily the idea of constructing the gondola, but the idea of proceeding forward with the gondola as its motions path through council. I want to spend too much time on it because, God, it's a gondola. But can you talk us through some of that? Why do you support the idea of continuing this gondola conversation? From my from the seat I'm in, representing you know the ward that I represent with Old Strathcona at its heart, it would solve uh, a long-standing transportation problem, which is connecting quickly and efficiently and effectively without having a car connecting downtown and, uh, and Old Strathcona. So there's some huge benefits there. Right? You know, I, that's, that's the window I see. And whether or not we, we could step up and afford to do it, if any other business came forward and said, here, we want to spend a whole bunch of money in your city, we think we have a good business case, and we told them, no, please go away, we'd be hung up and drawn and quartered. So there is something odd about this one that we have essentially a business coming forward, prepared to spend a lot of money, not asking anything from us. In actual fact, but being prepared to pay leases for the land. It's compared to some of the other stuff we've done, remarkably non-intrusive, and it adds and it answers a real a real transportation issue for us. So, I you know whether or not they're going to be able to pull it off, I don't know. I mean, ultimately, the real hurdle for them is not us. The real hurdle for them is going to be their getting the financing for it. And, and believe me, no one's going to put money in if they don't put a really good business case forward. So they're going to be much tougher on them than we are. I just don't know why we would get in the way of a business wanting to come forward and doing something that is a free benefit for us. I think they should be allowed to play it out. I, you know, We should not be adding to their risk. They have enough of the risks that they're going to have to overcome. There is one looming question, and it's the question that'll be put forward to all voters this October, and that's the upcoming election. Uh, I think we're pretty unique. I mean, maybe with Horlack, because he had um, a criminal charge on his record when he ran for mayor. But we've got a candidate for mayor that uh, is the only candidate to have been put forward to a censure hearing for the city code of conduct. We have a pretty aggressive election campaign. What do you think are going to be the defining issues of this upcoming election? You know, uh, I'm still, you know, the, the candidate that I'm hoping will run for mayor has still not declared and I'm strong arming hard. Thank you for talking to Sohi. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm hoping that question will become moot. You know, I know what Mike will put forward, you know, it, Mike is Mike. You know, I, uh, I, I've, I've always, on a personal level, really liked him. We agree on some weird things. We don't agree on other stuff. I, it troubles me that he didn't understand the nature of that censure because I think it is problematic. I think it was problematic in terms of the way we deal with each other. And was also troubled at the time because part of what he was doing was questionably true information about some stuff that was deeply important at the time that we were dealing with in terms of COVID. And it was a time where misinformation was very unhelpful to trying to get our city through something that was scaring it to death. 
and so to, to, to politicize some of those things, to, to suggest that, that ironically, we didn't add a single bike lane. The only thing we did do was take a bike lane out and turn it into a multi-use trail. So to begin to, to, to sort of politicize some of those issues when people were so fraught to begin with, I felt was not about us doing what is our job, which is about helping people move forward. And then, and then undermining each other, you know, it's a hard enough job to begin with, but our, you know, we need to treat each other with a certain degree of respect. So, you know, some of the swipes that were taken at Andrew and some of the swipes that were taken at Don were just not, not about good decorum. They were not about good debate. They were not about healthy discussion. And we've never really had a chance to talk about that um, because he never, you know, he sent his lawyer. He didn't even come himself. So the idea that somehow or other he learned and won't do it again, I think we gave it permission and that's problematic. Right. So, but I, I say that with some fondness for Mike on a personal level, you know, I, you know, he just, he sees the world differently from me and uh, I don't, you know, I think in his mind, he was absolutely right. And, and I don't. Um, and I think ultimately that would be for the voters to decide what they feel about that. I have a personal experience with Mike sending his lawyers to talk to people instead of talking. To yeah, them. <laughs> I know. And I, you know, and that was the irony that, you know, that, you know, that he ironically then went after and cost a, a journalist their job for doing exactly what he had just done. Didn't see the, uh, the hypocrisy of that. But I don't think he is being willfully hip- hypocritical. I think, you know, Mike sees things differently and I think is has deep conviction about them. It puts him in a different place. So I, I don't say this with any malice at all. Well, clearly you won't be endorsing him for mayor, but are you planning to endorse any candidates in either Papastu or Métis? Uh, yeah, I, I will. I will. I'm not going to say right now, but yeah, I'm going to, I've decided, I, you know, I, I, I was a little bit hesitant. My first thought was it probably wasn't appropriate to, um, to endorse someone, but there is someone who I've been working with really closely who I think would be fabulous. And I, I, you know, I thought, you know, um, uh, why not? Um, so I will. I won't say who that is right now because I don't want to steal their thunder. But um, uh, Métis, I'm not sure about. Um, I think there's a there's a couple of candidates that I met with there who I really like. But whether or not I know them or feel solidly enough about them, um, I I don't know. I haven't decided. I may. And uh, and obviously, if, if Amarjeet runs for mayor, I, I've committed to him that I'll work my tail off for him. So We just redrew the ward boundaries, and we have fewer... Uh, councillors than Calgary has. Our federal ridings are way smaller than our municipal ridings. Should we have added more councillors? I will defer to the mayor's argument on this one. I used to think so and thought I would support it. It was one of the reasons for splitting the wards was was because they were just so they were getting so big to represent. And, you know, and and yes, there were two councillors, but it didn't half the load. Um, So it's one of the reasons I was strongly supportive of splitting the wards. The mayor's argument, and I think it's a good one, and I think you see this playing out in Calgary, quite frankly, and you certainly see it playing out in other cities that have larger councils, is the ability to do good work um, with a nonpartisan council that doesn't begin to split into factions and parties is gets really problematic the larger it gets. And his argument was, you know, there's reasons why 12 is, is understood to be the optimal size for a board, for all this kind of decision-making bodies, and he felt and I'm now inclined to agree with him that it is better for us to have more resources to deal with the growing wards than to get rid of the thing that I think makes our municipal council really work, 
which is that ability to work as a unit and understand each other and not to factionalize and not to not to allow partisan thinking to come into things. And for a mayor to be able to have contact and, and relationships with everybody, I think it's a very practical number. And I look at what's happened in, in municipalities with larger councils and they, they inherently factionalize. And that's one of the things I've loved about municipal politics is that that doesn't happen. For me to get something moving forward, I have to convince six people to agree with me. And it can be a different six people on a different issue. So you can never afford to make enemies. That's one of the beauty, I think, of, of the way our municipal government has been working. And I think we play with that at our peril. So I also thought it might be time for more, but I was persuaded by his argument. And I, having thought about it since and watched the way we work since and understanding that I've been very lucky. I've been on 14 years of councils that have always, we haven't always agreed with each other, but we've always got along well together and worked well together and, and never really sort of broken off into factions. And I think that has to do with, with the fact that there's 12 of us, that we all share a corridor together, that you have to see each other all the time, that you can talk to people and you have those kind of relationships. And um, I think that's worth protecting. Last election question, I promise, but I got to get in <laughs> because you've said it yourself. You've been on council for 14 years. You've lived through two different mayors and we're going to have a new mayor upcoming in this yep. next election. Care to compare and contrast Mandel and Iveson's mayoral styles um, from the lens of a colleague and what we might hope to see in a new mayor um, that maybe is the best of both worlds? I, I think they both have been the right mayor at the right time, quite frankly. Stephen got a lot done, but he got a lot done at sheer force of will. And Stephen could be wonderful and he could be exciting. And there's other times he just wanted to throttle him. But, but it was that kind of force of personality and force of determination that I think is what the city needed at the time. We've got a lot of things happening that someone more timid would probably not have been able to make happen. Don is, um, Don's a very different character. I mean, if, if, if Don has a flaw, it's that he's sometimes a little bit too cautious. You know, my joke about Don is, you know, he's playing chess when everybody else is playing checkers. But it's that thoughtfulness and that ability to think long term and understand the big picture is really quite remarkable in him. And I think it's what we needed in order to be able to uh, solidify what we're doing and to move us forward on some of those things that we're much more thoughtful about what kind of city we were trying to build. And, uh, and I think if, there's a, if, there, if he has a legacy, it's, it's, you know, it, it probably is best epitomized in the city plan which is a long range think about a very different kind of city. And one that I think is the city we have to build if we're going to continue to flourish. Stephen, Stephen had an impatience for the rules of order. Don, you know, lives by them. I swear he has, has the rules of order under his pillow at night. Obviously that's, that's created a set of expectations amongst the current counselors that I'm not sure anybody else is going to be able to live up to in terms of how you run a good meeting and run a fair meeting and run an open meeting. I'm hoping we get the next mayor that we need. And at a certain point, you know, it's, it's the person who can take us to where we go next. Uh, I, you know, I, I think, and it's one of the reasons why I'm keen on Amergy, is I think some of these questions about making sure that all of Edmontonians can have the same positives out of our city as everybody else, I think is one of our challenges. And I think uh, it's been overdue. I think there's a real window uh, to move forward on some of those questions ar around equity that I think Amarjeet understands in his bones. Um, but he also brings with him a very practical sense and uh, real roots in the, in, the, in the bones and the people of the city, and also now the experience with dealing with other orders of government. So, you know, those are all sort of things that are probably going to be needed to move us forward. So I'm hoping he runs. He may not. If, if not, it's a whole different question for me. 
yeah, I, I'm really, I think what you want is for someone to do what needs to be done next, not revisits what we did before. If it was about revisiting what was done before, then we might as well keep on doing it. Well put. Um, thank you, Councillor, for covering a lot of ground with us so far in this episode. We've got to ask you one final thing. Can you tell us what's next now that you've done I, your council time? I'm looking for work. Do you know of any jobs? <laughs> I don't, I honestly don't know. I, you know, I, uh, it's a little bit scary, especially in these times, to be out there without a salary. I mean, it's, uh, you know, there's there's this myth that we have these grand pensions. We actually don't get a diamond pension. So I'm going to have to find something to do. And I'd like to find something interesting to do. I don't know what that is. And I, you know, one of the reasons why I think it's problematic, ironically, we don't have pensions is the last thing you want is people hanging around because they need the money. So, I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to do that, but I'll have to find something and hopefully it'll be something cool and interesting and something I can live off. So if you know of anything, let me know. <laughs> we will keep our ears to the ground and speaking municipally listeners, if you have suggestions for Councilor Henderson, tweet him. Uh, speaking municipally, powered by LinkedIn. Okay, no, I have one uh, one last. I pinky promise the last thing. What happened to Stephen Mandel's secret plan to renovate the Coliseum? Because he just showed up at council like a couple months ago and said he's got a secret plan that's going to solve the Coliseum, but he can't tell you quite yet. And then he disappeared, and we have never heard from him. W- what's up with that? <laughs> I don't. The simple answer is I don't know. Uh, it you know it's not. It's still burbling around out there. It's certainly not gone away. I don't think it may still go away. Okay. You know, I mean, that's there's 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 lots of very, as you know, very bizarre moving pieces with all of that. And I have no idea how that one plays out. And, you know, I you know, from where I sit, someone comes forward with a cool idea like the the gondola. I think you you need to let them explore it, whether how realistic or possible it is or what the impediments are. I have no idea. So that's that's all still still in the, in the making. You guys never asked me about Winter City. Every, because everybody in our document. Yeah, but everybody everybody <laughs> asks you about Winter City, right? I, I know. I fair enough. I know. I know. It's still my it's still my fave. And Mac, you worked on that too, didn't you? I'm pretty sure. I you didn't did. actually. I didn't work on Winter City. No. Um, and I've actually in more recent times been more critical. I think of Winter City certainly than I've heard you in recent interviews since your your blog post. I think you were pretty proud of it and happy about it. And, and there's a lot of good that came of it, but. Um, no, everybody asked you about that. So we thought we'd ask you about other things. Fair enough. <laughs> um, so we want to thank you for your time. We'll wrap it up here. But, you know, there was something on the tip of your tongue. We'll give you a couple moments. If there's anything else you want to let our listeners know about, anything you want to plug, anything we didn't cover in your legacy, we'll give you a couple minutes to let people know. Oh, no, I'm fine. I've got to talk about this plenty. <laughs> the only thing, you know, it's been, I, what I would say is, and I've been meaning to tweet this out, but it's been really it's been really gratifying to see all the response on, on Twitter. And I, I'm inclined to sort of send out a tweet that says I'm not dead yet. And I still have seven months to go on council. So, (laughs) but it's been, it's, it's, it's been gratifying to know that, you know, we've, we've done stuff that I think has made a difference. You know, I, I don't, I actually haven't talked a lot about the the active transportation piece, which has just been an ongoing thing that, that I think, you know, particularly the mayor and I have been at since day one. And I think we've made, some huge strides and changes there. It's something else I feel really good about. Um, I haven't talked a lot about it because I'm not the only one that's worked on that by any means. But but I think, you know, Don and I, you know, have been a dog with a bone on that one. And I think we actually have some half-decent decent infrastructure that's that's happening now, and I'm hoping it keeps on going and that the, the, the guts are there to, to stick by that. Um, and that the voices are there to, to insist that the next council sticks by that. So 
Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time and for covering all of our questions that were all over the place. It was greatly appreciated. And thanks again for serving 14 years on council. I know I've said this a lot of time, but being a counselor is a really shit job. I don't wish it on my worst enemies. And you've done it for the better part of my lifetime. So thanks for that. And I really enjoyed working with you, uh, Ben. I appreciated everything you brought to uh, those initiatives that I had the, the opportunity to be involved in and uh, appreciated your bigger picture and, and, and your passion for those issues. So thank you again. Well, thank you guys. And keep up the good work with this. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. Park Power has low overhead, which in turn allows them to offer low competitive rates. You can reach out for a no-obligation comparison by emailing estimates at parkpower.ca. And if you do decide to switch, it's easy. It's really just a change to your billing, and you can feel good knowing you are helping to give back to our communities with your utility bills. You can learn more at parkpower.ca. As always, that was an interesting conversation with an interesting guest, but Taproot has been having several interesting conversations, and there's another one upcoming this week. Yeah, we've been hosting these listening sessions for the People's Agenda, so we're exploring the eight questions that came up in our initial draft of the People's Agenda. We're recording this on Thursday, so this week we talked all about transportation, but we've got policing, climate change, a couple of things we talked about in this episode coming up. Uh, they're happening every Thursday at noon until the end of April, so you can head on over to tapredempton.ca uh, to sign up for those, and we hope to have you join us. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Ben. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.